Hi everyone, it's Joachim Akren, your host of the Elite Game Developers Podcast, a podcast about the entrepreneurs and investors who are building the games companies of the future. In this episode, I have a chat with Susanna Meza Graham, co-founder of Aldeon, an investment company from Stockholm, Sweden, focusing on games and tech startups in their early stages. Susanna started her career in gaming when she joined Paradox Interactive and later took on the roles of Chief Marketing Officer and Chief Operating Officer. For the last two years, Susanna has been focusing on investing. And in this episode, we talk about culture, bravery, trust, and how the Nordics have built an amazing gaming ecosystem. But before we go to this episode, Here's a few words from our sponsors. Hey, game developer. Are you looking for great new authentic video creatives? Try something totally new with influencer-generated content, IGC, by Opera Event. Influencers and actors will make specific creative content for your games. An Opera Event will deliver you high-quality video ads that highlight the best parts of your game. Get a free video with a purchase of four or more videos. Remember to say that Elite Game Developers sent you to claim your free video. Go to getigc.com to see some examples and get more information. That's getigc.com. All the developers out there that are looking for an easy game server auto-scaling solution should definitely check out GameEye. Choosing GameEye means choosing your players, as GameEye is a platform-independent solution. Game sessions are spread out over multiple providers to ensure redundancy and to achieve the best possible coverage in every region of the world. GameEye is your one-stop shop for all your server orchestration needs. They have many integrations already in place, ready to go. You also can connect to your favorite matchmaker, anti-cheat solution or network optimization tool to their orchestrator and start running game sessions. They provide the APIs for this. Take advantage of automated capacity management and always have resources to run game sessions. Scale when you need it in locations close to your players. Check out GameEye.com, that's GameYE.com, to see what they're up to and to connect with them. Welcome to the show, Susanna. Thank you. How are things in Sweden? I think they're pretty good. I mean, not to go into specifics around the the big C, but uh, in terms of uh, business, in terms of uh, how things are going, my my analysis of the situation is that we're doing fairly okay, especially yeah. seeing the companies that I work with and the the devs that I follow on Twitter, et cetera. Yeah, it's it's been really good start to the year overall regarding business stuff. Yeah, let's hope things get better and we we can meet physically soon as well. Yes, absolutely. And I think one thing working in a creative industry like games, and especially being a fairly young industry, I also mm. noticed that there's a lot of anxiety, 
a lot of concerns about the future. And I think being able to see sort of the light at the end of the tunnel and hope will help a lot of people with their um, their own personal anxieties as well. So it's one thing that business is going well, but we also want to make sure that, you know, the people are doing well. So totally agree with that. Hey, let's kick it off. And I wanted to sort of like introduce you to the audience, but like maybe a good place to start with that would be to to talk about your journey into the game industry and how you got in eventually into investing and now you have Aldeon. Absolutely. So I always say that joining the games industry for me was as a total coincidence. Staying in it was a very conscious choice, but joining us was a coincidence. I had um, a or have a marketing, international marketing background. I've run a few organizations on a national level, um, international organizations. And so I had, I think, a lot of the traits that you would typically ascribe to an entrepreneur and then mm. the concrete skills of international marketing. And so in 2004, I was looking to relocate back to Sweden from London where I was working. And uh, 2004, there were basically no jobs. There was like mm. one marketing job a week being posted in Sweden. And I came across this job that sounded really interesting in an industry that I knew nothing about, which was Paradox Interactive. At the time, a small developer moving into publishing. So they wanted to build the whole publishing part. And they needed mm. someone who had my skills and my background. And that's how I ended up there. It turns out it was a great match in terms of not having a blueprint, lots of experimentation, um, and basically building a lot of things from scratch, but also being able to, to grow the organization and its people alongside it. So I ended up spending 14 years there. <laughs> mm. um, I probably wouldn't have thought so and I joined, but I, but I am a very loyal person and I love seeing the results of my work. And every year at Paradox was different because we were pushing the envelope so much. And uh, then when we did the, the IPO uh, of Paradox, that was a, a really interesting chapter because we um, we sort of ushered, I was able to usher, help usher the organization into uh, this new era um, which was very special and it was very fun. And, and we kind of did it our own way as well. But working there for another couple of years after that, I started to feel that I've probably given the organization the best that I can do in terms of its size and in terms of what my competences are. And so I said that it's probably time now to hand it over to a really competent team to run the large organization that it had become. And then that's how I ended up becoming more of an investor, uh, an advisor, a board member. Um, and that's the path that I've, I've continued on now. So I'm back to being, you know, an advisor, but I, I would say a fairly hands-on advisor for smaller games companies, being able to utilize a lot of my experience and my competence, but also my motivation for seeing things grow from small to, to bigger. That's a really interesting journey. Before we go into like, details there. Can you introduce Aldeon and what you're doing now? Sure. So when I started investing in companies, um, I started discussing with a former colleague of mine who was the CFO at Paradox and uh, we did 
the IPO project together, for instance. Um, and he had been doing a lot of similar things. Mm. And he started saying, well, we started discussing um, that we missed working together in, in a team, in a team constellation where you draw on each other's skills and experiences, but also where you have a sounding board. Mm. And so he had started discussing with um, another person who he had done some co-investments with. And together we decided that our skills and our competences matched each other so well in the sense that we really complemented each other. We had similar ideas of how we wanted to help companies grow. And we had invested in companies that really complemented each other as well. So we decided to create our own investment company, um, which is Aldeon, merge some of our holdings. So we have about 23 holdings right now within tech and games. And so what we do is we play each other, we play on each other's strengths whenever, well, depending on which stage the company is in. So I've been involved in several companies that my partners have invested in and my partners have supported a lot of the companies that I brought into the constellation with things that I'm not so experienced in. So it's been a really interesting and I think rewarding experience in the sense that there's strength in numbers, right? And also, I believe that it's super important to work with people that you trust a lot. Um, and yeah. so there's a high degree of trust, not just in our relationship in Aldium, but also with the founders that we have invested in. And that's a, a really important component. So it's been interesting. It's like with any investments, there are highs and lows. There are mm. challenges the companies face. But um, so far, so good. I mean, we've been operative for about a year and yeah. um, really enjoying it so far. Nice. It's really good to hear. Hey, let's go and talk about your work at Paradox. Mm -hmm. I, I was talking to your ex-colleagues there and got this impression that you had a really big influence on the culture that was created at Paradox. Can you expand on that? Sure. I mean, I think having the privilege of coming in when something is just a small core and helping it grow and helping it like creating a, a more solid and a larger structure, of course, you're going to put your own spin on it or like your beliefs and your values are going to be very reflected in that. And I think that Frederick Wester, who was the person who recruited me and who I worked alongside for 14 years, we had a very similar idea that strong leadership and self-leadership is a super important component in any, I don't want to call it startup, but in any creative company that wants to grow and that has ambition. And so we modeled a lot of the things that you see in Aldeon, oh, sorry, in Aldeon, in Paradox now, uh, mm. on the kind of companies that, that, that we wanted to work in. And uh, certainly, I would say, looking at what Paradox became over the years, it's very much um, sort of the, the love child of, of my take on the kind of company that I would want to work at. And, and the values were very similar to the, the things that I value a lot. In saying that, it was a very collaborative uh, process. Um, we, I think one of the reasons why I was able to have an, a big impact on the culture is because we involved everyone in the process. So 
there was a lot of anchoring and a lot of ownership in the organization yeah. because everyone felt like they had a say and everyone felt like the culture that we were molding together, they had a part in that. Yeah, that's a interesting take. But, but I will say, I mean, I think while that wasn't my formal role to push the culture part, it was very much an area that I'm really interested in, cultural leadership, organizational growth, all of that. Yeah. But my former role was taking this new business area, which was the publishing part, which we hadn't done before and we knew nothing about, and build that from the ground up. So there was a lot of, I mean, in the beginning, we did everything. I did everything from like trailer creation websites, you know, building the whole PR function and marketing function. And so there were a lot of first, a lot of experimentation, a lot of identifying trends early on like we were the first to have a streaming producer well from what I could see anyway streaming producer employed we started inviting influencers to our events before that was even a a big thing especially the community relations which there was an embryo and a really strong passion from the devs before I joined to have a really close communication with the community that's certainly something that we pushed and pioneered along the way and and these days it's seen as a a totally like every it's like the bread and butter of any any company that has a huge audience but back in the day it wasn't necessarily seen as a very strategic um area so so again like I had my formal responsibilities and then I had my responsibilities that I was really passionate about and and luckily those two merged really well yeah, I want to double click actually on the culture side a bit there. Like now that you're observing startups, founders, maybe first time founders, building teams, I've noticed this. I often want to bring up the culture with the, with the founders. They're scaling as, as an area where they should devote a lot of time. What is your approach when you meet first time founders who are scaling and you maybe think about like, how are they addressing the culture? How do you approach them with that topic? I mean, that's a really good point. I think that culture and the leadership was also very much pushed by our board and our investors. And I think that so having that view that this is an important area from the mm. top and leading by example, I think is super important. So of course, I can draw from my own experiences I think that having a solid culture when things don't go as planned is absolutely critical. Mm. But I also think these days there is a lot of competition. A lot of the startups are doing very exciting things and they want a lot of good people to rally around what they're doing. And without being able to explain what people are coming to, what the company actually represents and what they can expect, they're not going to be competitive in the sense that they're going to be able to bring in a lot of the the best people in a sense. And so I don't find that this is a challenge at all. I think maybe the challenge rests or lies in the prioritization of that over something else, like actually spending some time on this and spending some money on this. But that's, I think, where the board and the, you know, the owners can come in and, and sort of help make that a clear priority. But in terms of um, willingness to spend time and, and effort on it. I don't see that as a challenge. I've gotten a lot of a lot of really good, uh, not just insights, but also motivation from, from most of the startup fund. In saying that, I probably wouldn't work so closely with people who are very, very averse to this mm. because then 
already there, there's there's a big difference between how I approach things and then we're probably not a good match for each other. Yeah, that's a good point. Sort of like you gravitate towards the founders who are passionate about building companies that model good culture. Yeah. yeah. Hey, I, I wanted to talk about this, your approach to risk-taking, which we were talking about previously when we had a chat recently. Mm. Like, how do you see working in teams help with taking taking on those risks? Well, I think the reason I brought up the team aspect is because I think I'm naturally fairly risk averse. I like being able to calculate sort of worst case scenarios and yeah. uh, and and adapt my strategies accordingly. Um, so I, everything is relative, right? I mean, Sometimes I talk to people and they think I'm the most risk-prone person ever. Some of the things that I've done are certainly not risk-free. But I think I move and I think we move in a world where things move very fast, where people take a lot of risk, where people try a lot of new things. And so I think in that world, I see myself as as fairly risk-averse. And so the way I've handled this is um, I surround myself with people who are much more comfortable at taking much more risk than I do. So they kind of push me to, to be a little braver at times. Um, and I also take a fairly uh, strategic approach in the sense that I decide what I'm okay to risk and what I'm not okay to risk. Like one thing is who I choose to work with. I would never compromise and work with people that I don't actually trust because I think trust trust is the fundament of any good business uh, relationship that will then later on uh, later on lead to results. So that's an area where I wouldn't risk working with someone that I feel there's something either there's not a match or there's something not quite right here. But then there are other areas where I would be much more risk prone. So again, surrounding mm-hmm. yourself with people that complement your own risk taking natural risk-taking approach, but also deciding what's okay to risk and what's like a non-negotiable. Those would be my two ways of of approaching that. Do you have any examples from your days of paradox regarding risk-taking? I think in the early days, we took so much risk. We tried so many new things. A lot Mm. of the times, not even being aware of the consequences of what we were doing because it was new and, and, and you know, we, we can really anticipate the consequences. So it became second nature in a way, like do it and then handle whatever comes out of it. As we grew, of course, it became a little bit harder because, you know, the bigger you are, the more expectations people have on you, the more professional you become, the higher the expectations. Certainly it's the case that a company with over 600 people employed can't operate the same way as, as a company of 50 people yeah. can. But in terms of uh, risk-taking, it was sometimes on a weekly basis, really. Um, and so I think the lessons or the learnings from that is, and that's something that I've taken with me now as an investor as well, is that it's really important to do things. I'm very allergic to people who sit and polish things for years because they're never going to achieve that perfect state. And I also think if you're creating something that is then going to be used or engaged with by others, you won't really know how that's going to be received until that has actually been brought to the people who are going to use it. 
So I think the whole collaboration aspect, feedback, iteration, all of those things are super important and need to be a part of, of, um, of the experimentation process. Um, and I think that at Paradox, we were able to get away with a lot of things, not because we were the smartest people in the world. Well, I mean, we there were a lot of smart people there, but I also think we were able to express our intentions and our intentions were always creating things that were really valuable for the community, growing the company so that we could do more things, work with more developers and being able to express that intention meant that a lot of the things that maybe didn't go according to plan, people at least understood why we had done them. And a lot of the times the things that hadn't gone according to plans were the foundation of something that was very successfully released later on or implemented. So that's a that's a great lesson for, I think, any any startup and something that I'll, I willingly share with, with the founders that I work with. Don't yeah. over polish and like you're never going to achieve that perfect state. Mm-hmm. And you're never going to be able to fully anticipate how a certain feature or a certain product will be received before you actually set it live. Like I was recently reading, rereading these uh, Paul Graham's essays because he has like all these really good essays on his website. Uh, one of them called Growth, mm. uh, which basically talks about the growth being the sort of the lifeblood of a startup. And then, like you were mentioning, like this kind of like being brave mm. to take risks, uh, sort of bravery and trust. I think that's like where you can achieve the, the growth. Like, what are the specific ways that you've seen entrepreneurs develop their risk taking capabilities? Do you think it's about like launching early is one, but like, have you seen other ways of them achieving that? I I think that's a really, really um, uh, important part. And again, like I said, the the choosing the areas where you're willing to take risk uh, and and which are the the non-negotiables. And um, again, like you were talking about culture, and I think a lot of this stems back to what I was talking about intention as well, is that if you have a clear idea of your identity and who you are and what you want to achieve, the risk that you take along the way is just like, it's like an A-B testing along the way to see how to take you to that that goal. So I think like having that, yeah. I compare it to having like a map and a compass and and, and having your, your, your map and, and, you know, your end goal in sight, the compass is, is somehow the, the, the culture that the sort of guides you, guides you when you start taking those steps on, on the journey. So I don't know, mm-hmm. that became very uh, philosophical, but, but that's, that's kind mm-hmm. of how I see it. Yeah, I think philosophy and startups actually work together really well. So <laughs> 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 uh, your work in gaming nowadays you are an investor but like is that the way you want to be involved what what else are you up to so i think the term investor is very broad and you can be a number like a, a number like an investor in a number of different ways um i think when i left paradox i was very adamant that i was going to try something new and i compare it to the the al pacino part uh, in in Godfather, when it's just when I thought it was out, they pulled me back in. You know, <laughs> it's just 
I had this idea that I wanted to try something different because I had done 14 years of like running an operative company and it was amazing um, and it was challenging and it was so rewarding and I learned so much. And now I wanted to try something else. And, and I came out and realized that there's a whole world out there within games. I can still learn so much. There are so many people doing new things. Um, I have so much to contribute based off of my experience. And there were so many interesting initiatives being pitched and discussed with me that I didn't really see a need to venture too far out of games. Mm. And one of the ideas that I had, one of the areas I'm very passionate about, which actually I almost didn't get the job at Paradox at first because there was concern that I was too focused on saving the world and that I wouldn't be interested in, you know, building the business. And so that part of me, I've embraced a little bit more, even though we did some cool projects at Paradox that also had a very strong focus on um, contributing to a more positive society. I've embraced the whole um, trying to use my my experiences, my network, and and you know support organizations that that work for um, our our communities. Um, so I I work with a lot of organizations in Stockholm, especially organizations that are focused on creating opportunities for young people, especially mm-hmm. young people with uh, roots in, in countries outside of Sweden, both combining my own heritage, but also the same approach or methodology that I use as an investor with startups in the sense that what they really need, they're already passionate. They already have great ideas. They are already able to um, create impact, but what they need to be able to do is scale that impact, Mm -hmm. do it on a, in a much higher degree and in a larger volume they often need more contacts, like a wider network and capital. So very similar approach to how I work with the companies where I invest, mm-hmm. I use for these organizations. And that way I, I, I approach it a little bit differently if it's pure impact. But a lot of the companies that I invest in have sort of a dual component of both I expect them to do well and I expect there to be a return on investment, but there is also impact. So I don't know if that makes sense, but I I, I have some things I do that are allowed to cost money, time and energy because I believe there's a greater payoff for society. Mm. Uh, Mm. And then there's other things that should make me money. (laughs) Um, So I continue to do that. But at the same time, my, my choices gravitate towards companies, founders, and organizations that have impact beyond just the bottom line in a balance sheet. That's amazing, yeah. There's a, we've been talking to, to the same folks up in, in Sheleftö mm-hmm. uh, about this uh, gaming accelerator project. And I would definitely love to see more tech hubs forming into these smaller cities around the world. And I think like I've been doing a lot of coaching up north in Oulu in Finland. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's always been really like a, a positive sign to see progress there, uh, which usually is it's not easy for them because there's not that much talent there, capital available. Like, How do you think like they could achieve success and building these tech hubs for gaming? Well, I think that if there's one thing this past year has shown us is that 
but people are gravitating towards um, other cities. Uh, they are gravitating to other life goals than just big city life. And I think that one of the ways to achieve success with this is to push exactly that aspect. The work-life balance doesn't mean that you're not going to create a startup that's successful, um, but that you also combine it with, you know, that walk in the woods or that um, that skiing or whatever it is that actually makes your brain function on an even higher level. Um, yeah. So I think that's one thing where you're able to maybe also have a family if you want to and, and combine um, startup life. Um, another thing that I've noticed is that there's a lot of municipalities who want to attract people back to their communities uh, because, of course, it has a lot of trickle-off effects in the society or in that region as a whole, meaning that there is there are investments happening. What's interesting about the whole Quileftio thing is uh, they're also talking to local entrepreneurs who've had success, who are willing to reinvest some of their um, success back into their their community. So it's like almost like a um, it becomes a little bit of a mini ecosystem. And so I think a the type of life that you're able to have that b the type of investments that are being made to ensure that you can create something. Um, are, is, is also interesting. And then I also think, especially now that we're also digitally connected, location is not as big of an issue. Mm. The one challenge I think they will face, but that maybe can be approached from a national level rather than like a local level, is what happens if you don't succeed or if you want to, you know, if you decide that this wasn't for you, what other opportunities are there? And I think that's one of the reasons why I think Stockholm as a, as a games hub has been incredibly successful because we've been able to attract talent from all over the world, but yeah. you're not necessarily moving just for one company. Like there's still the safety net knowing that if you're not a good fit, if you're not, if you don't feel like you've ended up in the right role or in the right company, there's tons of other ones to choose from. And so I think moving to Stockholm has made that, um, it's reduced the risk of making mm -hmm. that decision, of taking that decision, which could potentially be a little bit more challenging if you move to a smaller city at the same time. Again, maybe you can approach it with a national, you know, looking at the nation as a whole rather than a, a regional mm -hmm. one. Yeah, I'm definitely thing like this as a positive yeah, thing no uh, for sure yeah it's it's definitely there's so so much potential there so well i, I think that in general uh, it doesn't make sense that we're all con congregating in in one you know in in just a couple of cities um yeah. so if we can have much more of a cluster-based industry where it's more spread out i think it's it's a very interesting uh, notion and i think that we want to also create the same opportunities that we have, for instance, in Stockholm in other areas of Sweden, because you shouldn't have to need to move to Stockholm in order to have like an interesting job or to be able to um, execute on your amazing idea. Yeah, yeah, totally agree with that. Hey, I wanted to ask you about your way of spending time on work. How do you deal with time in your calendar? And how do you spend that time that you allocate for work? Um, well, my approach is very similar to how I talked about my investments. I make sure that I have a balance between my different objectives and, and, and 
portfolio in a way. So I spend some time on, again, the things that <laughs> are allowed to take time and, and cost money. And then I spend some of my time on the things that where I expect a higher return of investment. And I try to also allocate, there's actually a third one as well, where I try to be have some time allocated for people who approach me with different things. So I've, mm. I've gotten to know a lot of people in who maybe just want to bounce an idea. I got like a book idea from someone the other day. I had this amazing mm. talk with someone who's building something incredible in Stockholm that I didn't know even existed. Um, yeah. So just like being open for these conversations where there's no expectations that it should lead anywhere, where we're just bouncing things off each other, where a lot of the times I get, like I learn things, I get inspiration. I you know, my brain works in this way that I start thinking about a lot of interesting things when I, when I, um, I'm exposed to new ideas and opportunities, but it doesn't have to lead anywhere. There's no expectations on me rolling anything forward. And there's no expectations on like from my end on the person on the other side. So I guess maybe three things then, like the things that are supposed to give me the return, the things that are allowed to create a bigger societal return and then things that are just completely random, but where I feel like me taking this time will actually matter. And like for this person. Yeah. It is cool when things lead to something new that you never explored before. That's yes. absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. My approach to kind of like spending time because I'm, I'm basically Everything is my in my calendar, so I, I try to keep a lot of things in email as long as possible, and then then move them to a call once the things are sort of like you cannot communicate things effectively mm. anymore over email. But like, what do you think about this? Like after the pandemic, will people start going back to to the face to face as it was before COVID? What do you think? I think it really depends. I saw that Spotify just announced that their employees will be able to work from anywhere, you know, anytime, and that they will implement that for the foreseeable future. At the same time, I saw a survey done yesterday by the Swedish Engineer Society. I don't know what they're called in English. um, That says that a majority of, of people under 30 are actually finding the whole working from home, especially people who have just graduated, like new engineers, finding it quite challenging. They're finding motivation is dropping, um, a lot of other side effects. And I think that in games, we've seen both, right? We've seen Mm. companies that are thriving. We are seeing companies that are succeeding in spite of really challenging circumstances. But we're also seeing, and I think especially um, young people, are actually finding it more tough than they thought themselves to work from home. And and how do you solve not just the creative process of creating new, because executing on on already created visions is easier than than starting up new creative visions. How do you do that? And also how do you keep from working too much or or feeling too lonely or when you don't have those impulses of of meeting? So my answer to your question is, I don't think we're going to move to completely digital work, but I do think we're going to find structures of working more, like being more flexible with our work. Um, But I think a lot of companies will end up going back to at Mm. least having that option of of meeting face to face. 
Yeah, I, I have a feeling like people who like the remote work, now it's sort of like surfaced. Are you a remote worker or not? And then like after the pandemic, you can sort of like gravitate towards like, like groups of people who are working remotely and you become a part of that group, maybe a company or startup. I think it's I, a... I think the biggest issue or the biggest challenge that we'll face once people start is that now everyone's home, right? And of course, we're yeah. talking about the type of companies that we interact with. This is far from the situation in a lot of other industries where there's still a lot of face-to-face work. I'm thinking about people who deliver, who work in service mm-hmm. professions, etc. But if we, if we, for this exercise, talk about uh, the companies that we interact with, everyone's home, which mm-hmm. means that everyone only has access to digital channels, which means that there's not a lot of talks happening in the office that you're missing. You don't feel like the only one who's joining in via link, like everyone is remote, everyone is digital. Once we start, you know, meeting in person again, the challenge is going to be how do we ensure that people don't feel subpar in, in being able to perform their work and being eligible for promotions and and all of that in the same way as the people who are meeting uh, in the office. And and there's an opportunity there, but I think we shouldn't underestimate the the challenge and and, and some work needs to be put into that. Yeah, definitely. Going into talking about the founders that you're working with and you're seeing every every week, every month, uh, what are the sort of characteristics of founders that you believe are sort of signals for success? Yeah. So one of the things we already addressed is the whole trust thing, that there has to be both in track record, but also in interaction, a, a real sense of this is a reliable person that I that I can trust. But I think one of the things that I've always valued is founders who um, respect the money that you put in. And maybe it's different depending on if you come from a big VC or or like a, a smaller privately owned investing company like ours. But I've seen examples of founders who, when things don't work, go, oh, that's a shame. I mean, we tried to do this. It didn't really work, but, you know, take care. Bye. And, and I think that's a little bit disrespectful seeing that someone is actually committed, not just money but time and invested a little bit of themselves in helping these founders grow so for me like one key criteria is is treating treating the money that comes in as their own money not just mm. you know because otherwise just go to a bank or, or or something so that would be one and then the other one is and I don't know if there's a new modern word for this but the whole concept of grit like having the tenacity uh, to go for the long haul, um, to be able to hang in there and 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 work and, and work every day, and, and some things are going to be more fun than others, but like keeping your focus on what it is that you're trying to achieve on the goal. So so that whole grit aspect, I think, is is important. It's not always very glamorous to be no. as a startup founder, and then of course there has to be an element of passion, at least in the founders, the founders that I work with are, they're not like, they're not founders that you could just take and put them in any startup and they would be able to do the job exactly the same. Like it's people who believe in something and that something is what they want to create and and put out into the world. And I think that passion rather than just, just in quotation marks, being the CEO of a startup 
is really important. And I do believe it's a criteria for success. And there are companies, startups that can just copy paste other um, ideas and be hugely successful. Um, not saying anything about that. I'm just saying that those are not the type of founders that I prefer to work with because I don't mm. think that's necessarily where I can add a lot of value either. Yeah. And yeah. that that's... that kind of leads us to because we were talking a little bit about the niche. Mm-hmm. And I often say that I love the niche. I've spent I spent 14 years in a company that made their niche hugely um, successful, but also very, yeah. very profitable. So I I believe very strongly that there is not just impact to be gained by focusing on the niche, but also a profit. And so a lot of the times the founders that I work with are not necessarily going to be the biggest fishes in a big pond. They might be like a big fish in a small pond, but I've seen what um, profit and what impact that can have. So that doesn't scare me. I mean, that actually a lot of the times will be the the number one reason why I invest is because they've found a niche that they believe very strongly that they can cater to. Um, and they're also able to very articulately show me why. And in a lot of ways, a lot of times in different ways than have been done before. And so mm. those type of investments might be hard to do if you're only evaluating things from the boardroom or in an Excel sheet, because a lot of the times they're unproven concepts. So you have to tap into some other things to be able to see where this is going to lead to. And I think my my past experience there has has set me up a lot when it comes to being able to evaluate that. Yeah, that's amazing. Hey, uh, question again about founders. Uh, I think one of the superpowers is that if you can build a diverse team, then you can really like do amazing things. Uh, I think when when you're building a, a tech or a gaming startup and you want to find enough diverse candidates to do hires, have you seen like good examples on that? Because I think like the top of the funnel usually, especially in games gaming, you only have this stereotypical white guy there, like a big big bunch of them and then you end up often hiring a company full of them <laughs> like how could founders approach like hiring more diverse teams I, I mean i think that um the best examples that i've seen of this is um companies who don't necessarily only really narrowly go into games but look at like games entertainment um the type of engagement that we have with our players. Um, so like the consumer part of it and also um, just tech as a whole. So like you look at a lot of different verticals, you don't mm. necessarily look for people who have 20 years of games experience because that's a very narrow funnel. It is. So that's one thing. Another thing is, and I noticed this very, very clearly, like like that deal flow that I get and that my partners, my business partners get is very, very different, right? I mean, just by me being me and being a little bit different from my other founders, I get approached and I approach very different type of businesses and founders. So it is hard uh, to tap into different types of networks if you only have a certain kind of network. And so how are you going to tap into a different type of networks? Well, it is actively working to broaden your network. I've spent two years 
broadening my networks substantially. And the type of people with the type of competences and backgrounds that I've met are very, very different from when I was a thousand percent focused on paradox. So it takes work. It takes an active approach. You can go into my LinkedIn page and look at some of the steps that I outlined there. But uh, so, so that's that's one thing. And then if that none of that works, I think also partnering with organizations that have other types of networks and making sure that you can communicate with their network and, and, and their people and, and that way uh, broaden your horizons or also a way to do it. But that's just the first step. Then there has to be a culture of um, a culture where everyone's opinions matters and, and, and where everyone's appreciated for their own value that they bring to the table like the goal has to be super clear the focus has to be super clear but everyone is there to bring a certain value too and that has to be clear for the person coming in regardless of their makeup uh in a way their makeup characteristics and backgrounds or whatever demographic um so so it's it's really like a, a multiple step process but i think that there's a lot of the times people are in a super hurry to recruit and it's a lot easier to just recruit someone who you have close by. And I think it takes a little bit more, more effort and time. So that, yeah. those are my thoughts around that. Yeah. Hiring is just the first step. And then a lot of other stuff happens as well. Going back into talking about the Nordics here a bit, why do you think the Nordics have been such a good place for, for gaming companies to be so successful? I think that there, I know I've sat through a lot of presentations where people have cited, and this is Sweden specific, but the fact that there is like a big drive for everyone to have a PC at home in the 90s, that we have darkness so many months out of the year, and that's very conducive to staying at home and being creative, that we have a very strong culture of like storytelling, um, that we have um, you know, subsidized or free education through our tax system a lot of different components, right? But one thing that I do think, and, and one thing that, that had a really big impact on me is when I went to the US in 2006 to set up the Paradox office uh, in the US, yeah. I was able to sit at the Atari office who were our North, distrib- uh, North American distributors at the time. And one day I just seen a line of people walking past me with boxes. And I was like, oh, is there's like a big move, office move or something. I mean, I was a little bit... Uh, removed from everything that was going on in Atari because I had my own little cubicle and I was doing a lot of paradox stuff. And there's a line of people walking past with their boxes and, and they were like, no, they, I mean, they just got laid off today. Oh no. And I was like, oh, what? So in my world, that was something completely foreign that not only had they gotten laid off, but they had to walk with their boxes, with their belongings. They were being escorted out because that was their last day of work. And I've since seen this and I remember reading about GameSpot laying off people and people who had been there for 10 years were laid off in exactly the same way as the intern who had been there for two weeks. And so I think not being too afraid to lose your job from one day to the other is actually a really strong reason why uh, Nordic companies do well because they're able to question and they're able to mull over things and you're able to give feedback without worrying that 
you know, your boss is going to take it as criticism of their work and then you're fired the next day. So mm. it's super simplified, but, but I would say not having that immediate fear is a strong contributing factor to um, Nordic companies and games doing well. Another one is the way we traditionally, I think, and this is again, very simplified work with, um, you know, team influences, team hierarchies, company hierarchies. Um, I would often have people come up to me telling me about things that they wanted to do or giving me input on something that maybe was related to their work, but maybe it was related to the company as the CEO of Paradox. And I think that sort of mentality and atmosphere that that's okay uh, is very very strong and it makes people feel a lot of ownership over what they're doing and I think that ownership lends itself really really well to game development so in a way some concrete factors could be there but I also think it's a little bit to do with how we approach things like problem solving how we approach things like team ownership and creating a goal that we're all working towards together and ironing out any kinks along the way, et cetera. And I'm sure there are tons of other things. I mean, I referenced 2006 when I was in the US and I found this really old article of me where it said it starts with the games industry in Sweden has just been, you know, there's just been like poor headline after poor headline and it's in crisis and everything. But one company doesn't feel like that. And if you fast forward that to today and the only headlines are like, they're amazing. Like all the companies yeah. are doing so well and Swedish game developers are recognized worldwide for not only being great game creators, but also great company builders. So it's a completely different different mm. story. And, and a lot of people have contributed, have contributed to that, the entrepreneurs, the game creators, but also investors who have believed in companies and wanted to make sure that companies could thrive here, that We've built a lot of competence through schools and education, et cetera. So it's um, what I'm talking about doesn't necessarily paint the whole picture, but it's certainly elements of it. And, and I think a lot of different components have contributed to it rather than one specific one. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, it's sort of the safety net is something I often think about as well, like how you, you can't really get fired without a big process legal process happening especially in Finland so but yeah. another thing That's as well when it comes to safety net is I was listening to this uh, interview with Sophia Benz who's uh, an investor that a lot of people know here in, in Sweden she was talking to this American person who was interviewing her and uh, she was talking about the choice that she made going from the agency where she was working, where she had a really good job at the PR agency to join Spotify at a very, very early stage. Mm. And this person who was interviewing her was like, how did you dare to make that leap? You already had like your pension plan, your dental plan, your health care, everything, you know, like how did you dare making that leap? And Sophia made the point of like, I didn't really have to consider all of those things because I knew that even if this didn't work out, I would still land on my feet. So like it's a safety net in, in multiple ways, more than one where your family's well-being is not always incredibly tied to your particular role at that particular moment. And so yeah. 
yeah, well, I mean, we yeah. could talk about this forever, but it's yeah, just exactly. uh, <laughs> yeah. it's just interesting to consider. Yeah, totally. Uh, like now, now that we're talking about Sweden, can you shed some light on what what's going on with these publicly listed uh, gaming companies like Embracer, Steelfront? Like, how are there so many of them, and how can the public market love each of them so much? Like, do you have an explanation? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know if I'm the right person to to say, but but from the outside, n- number one, I mean, several of them have really, you know, proven themselves. Like they've they've set out a strategy. They've been very clear in what they're trying to achieve, and they've like hit target and milestone after milestone. And I am a really really big believer and proponent of uh, letting your results speak for yourself, and also, you know making sure that there's a substance there. So I think one of the reasons why people uh, love them so much is obviously that they're able to see that they're keeping to their strategy and that they're they're hitting these different milestones that they've promised to do. Um, then we've ended up in a really interesting situation here in Sweden that uh, because the market loves acquisitions so much, you can almost say, I heard someone mention it as like, it's almost like a, it becomes like a self-playing piano in the sense that, you know, you acquire something and the, the, the share price goes up so much that that acquisition has almost paid for itself. And then you can acquire something else. And then, you know, that acquisition almost pays for itself, et cetera, et cetera. So I think um, one of the reasons maybe why the market, and again, like I'm not an expert, and I'm sure there are other people who could speak more eloquently about this. But I think one of the the reasons why the markets love these companies is that there are so many examples out there that they feel like they can count home the, like again, reducing risk. Like you're able to calculate the case in a different way than if you have a company that comes in and does something completely different. And I think it's a strength that we have so many, like such a variety of different games companies. Uh, on the stock market. Mm. I think that I look forward to more companies being listed that are not necessarily maybe pushing the publishing angle or that are not necessarily pushing the um, acquisition part. There, I, I might have some inside information that maybe some of those companies are going <laughs> to be listed within you know, the next couple of years. But I think variety is good. And I think that, you know, this business model and this approach and this way of running things has obviously uh, proven itself very successful, not just for the people running the companies, but also a lot of people who have invested in them. And 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 more, even more diversity uh, on the market, I think, is, is is positive. And then the only thing I would say is the same thing goes for these companies and for a lot of other companies. Is like always make sure to evaluate strategy, make sure to evaluate substance, make sure to evaluate, you know. The, the milestones that are being hit. And then, I mean, there's a little component of trust in there as well. If you feel like mm-hmm. you you have confidence in the management, then um, you know that they can weather a lot of a lot of storms if there are potential storms uh, in the future. And it's, mm-hmm. it's great to see Swedish companies take such a strong position on the global games market. It makes me very proud, especially remembering where we all came from. And it is quite huge. Do you think the seed for this, having so many companies, is somewhere where Paradox was 
inventing the, the publishing model and then it's skewed towards these other companies like Philfront, I think, started with PC publishing as well. Do, do you think there's any correlation why both companies are in Sweden? Or uh, Not sure I understand the question, but I do think that seeing tangible, concrete examples of companies that have been successful in doing certain things and executing on certain strategies, of course, makes it more attractive and 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 you know more interesting for investors to invest in in other companies that are potentially um, not doing exactly the same thing, but also uh, moving in that direction because you can count home. I don't know if you say that in English. Count home the investment in a different way than someone who's doing something completely new, where mm. it's very unpredictable how the market is going to respond to it, but also how how the substance and the results are going to be made in the company. Yeah. Yeah, I think like if we would have let's say in Helsinki publicly listed company that would be becoming one of the biggest publicly listed gaming companies, I think there would be a lot more parties also exploring listing mm. in Helsinki. So yeah, it's like when Supercell became a huge success, we saw dozens of gaming companies get formed in this com- country with this like Supercell examples. Yeah. And that's actually a really, really brings me to a really interesting point, which is, and I'm certainly an example of this. It's like when someone or or parties have success in this in this industry, we see that a lot of that is being poured back into the ecosystem of games, whether it's through investment or whether it's through expertise or whether it's through starting your own companies or, or what it is. And I think that cycle is extremely positive. And that mm. cycle is one of the big reasons I think that um, we've had we've become such a big player in the in the Nordics when it comes to creating companies that big and small that are having like a huge impact on on the global ecosystem of of games Um, so that attitude by the people who are building the industry and their desire to continue growing like a positive industry is uh is is very very strong and i can't tell you why that is maybe it's because it's very relation based i know a lot of people who leave games and then come back cuz there mm-hmm. there's just something so special about our industry but but that's very positive um and i i really well i'm certainly doing my part to to make sure that we continue working like that yeah that's good hey susanna i have some final questions for you what is your favorite book and why? Oh my god, I saw this and I was like, I should say something really smart now. Uh, <laughs> and then I thought, I actually I read a lot of um, I read a lot of crime novels. <laughs> I don't know why, yeah. but like I read, like I have, you know, I, I get very um, attached to characters. So like I've read all the Harry Bosch books. Uh, Joe Nesbo is a Norwegian writer. Um, it, has written about Harry Hall and there's like all these uh, Swedish uh, crime uh, uh, writers as well. So I get very attached to their characters and follow them along the stories. But I think the books that I've read the most times is probably the Harry Potter books. I've always been a, a huge fan. So I think I'll, I'll answer the question that way. Nice. Do you have a story that shaped you and how you approach your work today? I saw that question and I'm like, I'm not really sure what you mean. Like what has made me the person that I am today? Is that the question? 
how you approach your work? Was there anything like that happened that you still think about today regarding work? I've always been very open for opportunities, which I'm very grateful for. I've never had like a five or 10 years plan. And I think that where I've ended up in work has always been very organic. Um, I ended up staying at Paradox for 14 years because I would evaluate where I was and if I was still able to contribute and if I felt like I was still learning and developing. And every year when I was able to say yes to that, I would continue. So I think that that probably has influenced me the most, being open for all those twists and turns and opportunities that come along the way. Now um, I'm in a situation where I can be a little bit pickier with what I do, which is uh, amazing. I'm finding myself gravitating very much to the things, to the people that give me energy, where I'm able to use my strengths, what I perceive as my strengths more. And again, where I can work with people that I, uh, that I have confidence in, that I trust have not only my best interest at hand, but our best interest at hand, and also the people that we commit to working with their best interest um, at hand. And so I don't know if that's a story, but that's sort of like the the approach and principles upon which I decide what I should spend my time on and, and sort of in which direction I should go. That's great. Hey, as the final question, what's the best way for founders and entrepreneurs to get in contact with you? So uh, they can email me at Susanna, S-U-S-A-N-A at aldeon.se or just ping me on Twitter. My username is Sus underscore LMG. And um, that's probably the easiest way to start. Nice. Hey, Susanna, this was amazing. Thanks so much for, for coming on the show. Thank you so much for inviting me. I, uh, I had a lot of fun. Thanks. Okay, take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks again, Susanna, for coming on the show. If you like our content, please do hit follow or subscribe to the show on your favorite podcasting app. And if you haven't yet subscribed to our newsletter, you can do that at EliteGameDevelopers.com slash newsletter. We have a lot of content coming out every Friday morning around gaming startups, fundraising, M&A, game design, everything related to game startups. So check that out. And I will see you next week. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.